Amen. Well, I'd invite you to turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Psalm chapter 4. Psalm 4. The last time I think I did a psalm here, it was Psalm 3, and, and, and really the context for both are, are the same. They, like Psalm 1 and 2, sort of play off one another and they continue the same thought. But this one is going to have a different tone, not simply of, of one of victory and one of the Lord being his protection and, and shining about him, but, the Lord, but David actually dealing with the struggle, not just externally, but internally. That sin and how it affects us doesn't just, de- doesn't just degrade us outside in our own bodies and in our own feelings with our friends and families, but even internally as well. That causes David at least to endure a great deal of what Martin Lloyd-Jones titled in one of his books, Spiritual Depression. And he's showing us how to deal with it in that way. And it, with some of the same context, it'll help us to, to understand more of why David was thinking in the ways that he was. But hear now God's word from Psalm 4. For the director of music with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long will you people turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Know that the Lord has set apart his faithful servant for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Offer the sacrifices of the righteous and trust in the Lord. Many, many, Lord, are asking who will bring us prosperity. Let the light of your face shine, shine on us. Fill my heart with joy when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will lie down and sleep, for you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, I again thank you for your word. And even as we've heard it here tonight, read, that you will help us hear from you as it's preached. I pray, O God, that you will let the very words of our mouths and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know what you do whenever you need a need help for anything, who you call. Sometimes in extreme emergency circumstances, you'll usually call one number and that's 911, be it for fire or EMS or police, whatever it might be, or you might call your spouse, you might call your brother or sister, whoever it might be, you usually call somebody for some reason for help, whatever the circumstances require. You know, growing up, when we would have those sorts of questions, when we'd have to make some of those same requests, we would always, between the siblings and myself, we would always kind of coordinate who we would actually call. Uh, We would have, and it kind of depended, again, on circumstances. You know, we could either call our grandmother, who would drop everything and come. We could call our mom, who, like mom always would, would offer an ear of sympathy, and she might come if she answers the phone. (laughs) And then with my dad, it's, the same, it's something of the same thing. He'll come if he can, and, and usually he's more prone to answer his phone, and he'll come when he can get it. So what we would usually do if it was serious, we would call Grandma. If it were you know, moderately serious, we, could, we had a few minutes to wait, we would call Dad. And if we needed anything at all, 
option of last resort was mom because she just wouldn't answer the phone. We just didn't understand why. So if we needed help, we wouldn't we wouldn't usually call her because she may not necessarily answer. I don't get the impression that I don't love my mother, but because I, I do. But it's just you know whenever those calls would would come, we just would always go to someone else. But when you have those three sorts of circumstances, you think about who you're going to call. Why do you call them when you, who do you call on and when do you, what do you do in those moments of distress when it comes time to really make life altering decisions? What do you do when you have people in your life that can make life altering decisions for you? What do you do when you have someone in your life particularly that's particularly difficult and will bless you to your face? will say, bless your heart to your face, but then do everything else but behind your back. Who do you go to? How do you react to that? Because, you know, you think about it, you, what, what gets you going more, I was even listening to a sermon this, on the way over here of somebody who was saying, you know, when, whenever someone tells you that they're proud of you, you, you really enjoy it when they say it to your face. It really encourages you when they say it, when you overhear it, when you weren't supposed to maybe. But even in those times where they say something critical behind your back, those hurt too. How do you respond to that? How do you deal with that? How do you approach it? David approaches that with us here in this context in a rather unique way, and it causes him a lot of angst, causes him a lot of pain and a lot of hurt, because in Psalm 4, the context is very much the same of Psalm 3. If you go back in your, in your Bibles and your copies of God's Word to Psalm 3, you see this at the very top. You know, before it says, Lord, how many are my foes? It says this, it's a Psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Now, if you remember from, from David's life, he had committed his sin with Bathsheba and it rent his house apart. It ran his house apart where even now his son has rebelled against him. His son has tried to tear his kingdom away from him. And even some of David's own disciples, his own close friends, betrayed David and went to Absalom. They left David and went to Absalom. And even one, one person was parading behind David, coming at him time and time again, saying, you are not God's anointed. He has taken the kingdom away from you. You remember what he did to Saul? Because of what you've done, whatever it is, he is going to do much worse to you. And it's all day following him, constantly. And this is affecting David. Not just with what we saw see in Psalm 3 where he's asking the Lord to deliver him, to strike all my enemies on the jaws, he's saying in verse 7. From the Lord in verse 8 comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. David is not just dealing with that external deliverance at this point. He's really dealing with it internally because it's shaken him to his very core. And we'll see some of how that plays out. But one of the things that I'm, that I'm convinced that David is teaching us in this psalm is this, that even when those times come, when you have moments of deep distress like David is enduring, that having a contented heart comes by having a confident joy in God. Having a contented heart comes by having a confident joy in God. And I want to show that to you in three ways. Dealing with slander in verses 1 to 3 how to deal with revenge in verses 4 to 5, and then how to deal with discouragement 
and verses 6 to 8. Dealing with slander, dealing with revenge, and then dealing with discouragement. Now, when we consider what it means to deal with, with slander in verses 1 to 3, the first thing that we need to consider is how it's an appeal to God's righteousness. Look back with me at verse 1. Because what he says there is he says, Give me relief from my distress. He says, Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. It's, it's basically saying, you know, it, at one level it's an admission of guilt because he's saying at one level, you know, I know that a lot of this has come upon me for my own life. For my own life. I'm not a righteous man. I know that this, this constant tug of war between myself and my kingdom with my own son, Absalom, really is stemming from this one singular issue, that, that I, this egregious adulterous affair that I had many years ago, this murder that I had. This is what it's all coming from. So I know that in a lot of ways this has to do with my own sin. Yet, Lord, I'm pleading for you to have mercy on me and hear my distress. But what's the basis for all of that? What he says there at the beginning of verse 1, it says, when he says, answer me when I call to you, not if I call to you, but when I call to you, showing that his first duty, his first duty, even when dealing with this, even before he asks for help and mercy, before he asks for mercy, before he asks for a God to give him to relief and distress, is to say, answer me when I call to you, O God, God of Who's right? My righteous God. See, David's not basing any of this on his own righteousness, but he's appealing it directly to his own righteous God. If you look ahead at 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, John makes a particular plea. He's saying this, you know, none of you sin. Don't sin. Don't sin at all. You see how high of a bar that is. But if you do, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The righteous one who clothes us in his own righteousness, who gives us a hope for right standing before God, that when we do stand before him in spite of our own sins, Jesus Christ came, he died to pay the penalty for our sins that we deserve, that we can stand before God at all. And so what Jesus is saying, so what David is saying here is, is very much in the same vein. I don't have any right or re- rhyme or reason to come to you because I am a sinner just like the people that are attacking me. But that's why I'm coming to you for help. You are my righteous God. You're the one who sits on the throne. You're the only one who, when I, when I call for an answer, when I ask you for relief, I know I don't deserve it, but I know that only you can give it. And that, ought to, that shows us something, and that teaches us something, that, when, that whenever we're dealing with someone who has slandered us, mistreated us, even done what... What David's own son is us calling existential threats that are life-altering decisions as far as that, even when it hurts, even internally, we're no less sinners than they are. We're no less sinners than they are. You know, I had a thought. Um, someone had pointed this out to me at one point. He's a good friend. And so this was taken rather well. You know, there was a time where, you know, there was a particular struggle that was going on in my life, and I was you know, just really, really angry about it, really angry, just venting. And what my friend ended up telling me, he says, you know, Dale, you might be right. You might be. But have you ever considered that you're a sinner just like he is? Have you ever considered that when you're you're angry with him, you're venting about him, have you ever considered that you're a sinner just like he is? That you need Jesus and his righteousness just like he does? 
Because, see, it's really easy to, to do that. It's really easy to go to somebody else and to vent about whatever someone has said or did to hurt you. It's a completely different thing than to say, than to take it to the Lord, to the Lord our God and saying, you know, it's based on your righteousness that I can even come to make this plea at all. Because if I'm judging them based on my standard, which is what we're, we're inevitably doing when we go to vent to somebody, we're judging them based on our standards. But if we're judging somebody and we're, and we're taking something to prayer based on God's standards, we have that same mind, heart and mind in us that I'm a sinner just like they are. I need God's grace and mercy just like they do. And I can't fix it. I need God's help just like they do. And it's important for us to remember because of how we frame our life, because of how we frame our prayer lives, that we have to go to him for the same mercy and righteousness that even the person that's hurting us does as well. Absalom needs Christ just as much as David does. But not only that, not only are we to appeal to God to, to a righteous God, we're also to appeal to the slanderer. David moves from his prayer to God to then begin to pray for the person that he's dealing with. Look at verses 2 and 3. How long will you people turn my glory into shame? How long will, will you love delusions and seek false gods? Know that the Lord has set apart his faithful servant for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. This is following a very similar structure to David's opening prayer and petition does. He makes this, this one, one petition and then he, he goes back to the Lord and he's, as he's trying to make his, his plea. He says, know that the Lord has set, set apart his faithful servant for himself. What's he talking about here? He's talking about election. You think about back to Israel's history and how they have, you know, thinking about, you know, you're a people set apart specially by God to be my people, to be in the land. I will dwell with you and you will dwell with me. I will be your God and you'll be. That's the sort of thing that David has in mind here. But what's coming from this? What's coming from this is a man who, who's named Shimei in 2 Samuel, who's, again, like I was mentioning earlier, this is his name, Shimei, who is saying, God has taken the kingdom from you. You're not his. He's forsaken you, just like he's done with Saul, because of what you've done. And what David is saying here is he's, he's basing his questions in verse 2 based on this knowledge of the fact that he, has, he is set apart by God. He is his own treasured possession. That the Lord, because of that, the Lord hears me when I call to him. The Lord, always, when I call to him, he hears me, he answers me. But what David is positing that, when David gets there, he prefaces it with this in verse 2. How long will you people turn my glory into shame? How long will you run my name in the ground? Both to my face and to everybody else. How long will you love delusions and seek after false gods? How long will you tolerate lies? How long will you run my name to the ground? How long will you take into lies about my character? David is a sinner just like everybody else. And David has done a lot in his life to warrant a lot of criticism. Anybody, whether they're a leader, whether they're a parishioner, whether they're anybody gets a lot of criticism at some point in their life. I was talking to a man about three weeks ago, and he said something that kind of stuck with me. He, he said he always reminded his kids that, you know, sometimes it doesn't matter how nice you are, how kind you are. It, it just really doesn't matter. There's always going to be someone that just simply flat out doesn't like you and that they will try to do anything to hurt you. That's just how it is. 
And yet what David is saying here, when he's petitioning all of that, he's saying, how long will you do this? How long will you love this? How long will you shame me in this way? And this is his internal struggle. This is reflecting an internal struggle of replaying things over and over and over again in his own heart and his own mind to the point where David is discontent. David is struggling in his own heart with, with the people in his life that are causing him great existential turmoil and threat. There was a book I was reading on forgiveness by Tim Keller, and he says, and he says this. This is something why, why forgiveness is hard to, to come about sometimes. Sometimes when we say, I forget, someone you know, sins against you and you forgive them, you absorb it, yet there's something that can often come about in that as well, and that's replaying the episode over and over and over again in your head. And then he raises the question, have, you actually forget, have they actually been forgiven? No, because your heart is not at peace with God, because is not at peace with them, because your heart really isn't at peace with God. And the same rule applies. You can even think of hypothetical scenarios of where, you know, you, know you, you even think about scenarios that could happen. And you think about how your response would be in that case. And saying, how long, how long will this continue? And David doesn't do that. He's still struggling with it and he's still replaying these. And yet he still bases it properly in the fact that he is God's. Whatever slander that has come about him, he's rooted in the fact that he is God's chosen one. And he's rooted himself in the fact that, you know, God is still going to hear me one way or the other. And that shows us something as well, that dealing with slander does not mean to get even. You know, I've, I've heard it before, you know, don't get mad, get even, seeking revenge. You know, you always have to get, get better, and we'll, and we'll deal with the revenge section here in a second. But quite often it's the case, whenever we have this sort of internal struggle that David has in his own heart and his own mind, that we, we, we want to deal with it immediately, and oftentimes it's not very godly. And yet what David is showing us here is when that happens, instead of continuously battling it out in your heart, first take it to God, appeal to a righteous God, but then appeal to them and wrestle with that with God. Let him fight the battle. It's not your battle to wage. It's not your battle to win. Only he can do it. You're only responsible for your sin toward that individual. And so what you end up having to do with there, and that's one of the ways in which you can deal with slander, is not get even but pray and forgive. The second thing that you can do is, is begin to deal with those impulses to revenge in verses 4 to 5. Let's look at it. He says, Tremble and do not sin. When you are on your bed, search your hearts and be silent. This psalm is actually called something of an evening psalm. It's one of those, you know, you think about it, again, one of the sermons I was listening to, you know, you, you, he was talking about, you know, sometimes in his life and then with his kids and his, you know, friends of his and they have kids, you know, they, but they'd have teenagers who throughout the entire day, the, their teenagers would not want to talk about anything. They're just, meh. they give grunts. They would, you know, not really say anything. They were just kind of, you know, the idea of the image of the moody teenager who just doesn't seem to care. You know, but at night, they're chatty Cathy. They always want to talk. <laughs> and, 
you know, you have the, the opportunity in that moment at night where things begin to percolate. What happens throughout the day? What are some things that happened in that day that I wish that I had responded to? What are some things in the day that I wish that I had, you know, you know, voiced some concern about, handled differently? Because what David is di- talking about here. As, we, as he comes at the night, nighttime, he's, he's really dealing with that internal struggle to where he's beginning to have to resist that impulse to revenge in verse 4. Because that's what he's saying, tremble and do not sin. Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 actually interprets that as anger. You know, sometimes, you know, in, in your ESV or your NIV, you know, in my NIV it says tremble and do not sin. In the ESV it says be angry and do not sin. Paul builds on that in Ephesians chapter 4, and he says, you know, don't let the sun go down on your anger, you know. But the basic point of it all is is don't respond on impulse. That's the last thing that we should do. As I mentioned a little while ago, you know, sometimes we want to deal with things right then and there. We want to deal with it then and get it over with, or we'll at least wish when we look back at the day, we'll wish we handled something differently Maybe we would have handled it rashly, but if I didn't handle it today, I'll certainly handle it that way tomorrow. David's reminding us, tremble or be angry and do not sin. Don't handle this rashly. He's not saying don't deal with it, but he's saying don't be angry and sin. There's only one person in the world who's ever been angry and not sinned. And who is that? Jesus. The one keen instance in all of that was when he was in the temple and he was turning money, money tables over and saying, you know, you've turned God's house into a den of thieves when it's supposed to be a house of prayer. That's the one time in all of human history that someone has been angry and sinned not. We don't have Christ's nature, his perfect nature, so we will oftentimes when we get angry act impulsively and so sin. But David's saying don't do that. Resist that impulse because, as Isaiah says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Does he not say that? He does. Because when you're on your beds, search your hearts and be silent, he says. Search me and try me and know me and test me, O God. Test my righteousness against yours. And in doing that, I will be silent because I'm not you. I can't respond impulsively But even if I responded, I can't always promise that I won't respond sinfully. Second thing that he shows there is that ultimately it's not just simply resisting that impulse to revenge. It's also a steady confidence and trust in the Lord. Offer the sacrifices of the righteous and trust in the Lord. He's basically saying go back to church, leave the anger there so that you can actually worship God rightly. Be angry and do not sin so that you can worship God Rightly. Have you ever been to church on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening and just something that morning happened that really just makes you angry? I mean, it just really is sticking with you. I can't help but think when I was a kid how often my mom must have gotten angry at us, at us kids for, getting our, for not being ready to go to church whenever we were, whenever she was ready to go, whenever we needed to be ready to go. You know, those are the sorts of things that I think happens. But, but what about something that happened on the Monday previous or the Wednesday or Saturday night 
that it's just you can't let it go. And you've been angry, and it's been festering, and you really almost don't even feel like going to church. Had an instance of something happening like that where someone got angry, and they just said, I'm not coming to church. That's the wrong response. The right response, however, is to leave it with the Lord so that you can respond, not in anger, but in saying, you know, Lord, this is your battle. So I can go to church and that I can offer the sacrifices of the righteous, but trust in God. That's what it means to give it to the Lord. Trust him to work it out. Faith in Christ is not just simply something about, you know, giving your heart to Jesus and, you know, converting your souls to him and, you know, all will be well. Trusting him is not just trusting him with your eternal salvation, but even for someone like David, it's trusting him to handle and to fight his battles for him. That the truth would come out. That whatever's bothering him, whatever's festering in his own heart and soul, whatever's causing them this anger, the only person that can really, at the end of the day, be healed from that anger is me. God can handle them. I have to respond biblically, righteously, according to the sin that's in my own heart. And that's what I'm under conviction for. That's what I need to leave before him. And that's what I need to trust him, God Almighty, to handle. Because our impulse is when something happens, we want to fix the situation or we want to fix the person. I've never met someone who can totally change and fix somebody better than Jesus Christ. None of us, no one else can do it. You wish someone behaved a certain way, did a certain thing a particular way, and they don't, and it just it's frustrating. But nobody can change someone totally and fully and completely like Jesus can. I can't, you can't, but what we are saying here is that faith in Jesus means trusting him to do it. And so resist that urge to revenge. But the, second, but the third and final thing here is this. We're dealing with slander, we're dealing with revenge, but we also need to deal with discouragement because in all of this, where our hearts become so angry and so riled up, as it were, we begin to become, when we see what's before us, we can be discouraged with that. We can be discouraged with what's going on still in our own hearts and minds and even what's all around us. Like still, everything feels out of control, but we need to deal with that discouragement. And David shows us this in verse 6, that it's still to find satisfaction in Jesus in verses 6 to 7. Look with me if you will. Many, Lord, are asking, who will bring us prosperity? Let the light of your face shine upon us. Fill my heart with joy when their grain and new wine abound. Two things are going on here in verses 6 and 7. He's talking about those people that still exist outside around him, that are still trying to run David off from his kingdom, that are still trying to make existential changes in your life as well that you don't want to be made. And David is saying this, there are still people who, who will say, who will bring us prosperity? Fill my heart with joy even when their grain and new wine are being filled. What's he saying here? What he's saying here is, is this, that you know, in the eyes of everybody, there's no prosperity, there's no good thing coming to a righteous man. There's just none. Nice guys finish last. I'm sure you've heard that before. But in verse 7 he says, but even when their grain and new wine abound, what he's saying there is like the world is having their, fa- their pleasures. They're having everything that they could possibly want. Grain eventually rots and fades away. The, grain, the ground in which grain is grown still becomes tired and worn out and it becomes at some point 
not usable. New wine turns into old wine, and wine does have a shelf life. It gets old and it goes away. What David is saying here is that they've had their day in the sun, and they're even having it right now. Yet there is this. The light of your face will shine upon us. Let it shine. What David is pulling here into is the ironic benediction. If you go back to look at number 6, verse 24 to 26, he says, Let the light of your countenance shine upon us and give us your peace. Fill my heart with joy. Joy that knows that, you know, you're the one who's ultimately in control. Joy in the fact that I know you. They can have what they, ha- what they want. They can have their new grain. They can have their new BMWs. They can have their new big houses. They can have this. They can have that. But I have you. And I can't help but think again of a quote of someone who said, you know, Jesus is, you don't always realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. David is in that moment right now. David is in that moment where Jesus quite literally is all he has. And even when the world seems to be succeeding and I seem not to be succeeding, my kids may not be succeeding. They may not be living the way that I think they should biblically. But the only person that can change them ultimately is Christ. And my joy, my satisfaction is going to be in him who can do it. Not in anybody else. But the other thing that you do is you need to find your refuge in God, Christ as well. Because ultimately the reality is this. That David still has his foes surrounding him. And he says this in verse 8. In peace I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. He has that contented heart at this point. He's railed, he's raved, he's poured himself out to the Lord, and now I can lie down and sleep. You know, you've had a long day at work. Been there, done that. I'm sure everybody has. And there's just something great about being able to come home after a long day of work. You've just had your dinner. You've just talked to your spouse about the day you've had, and and you, you started recirculating everything in your head, and, and now that's all gone and dealt with, and you can lay your head down at night and sleep and just go to sleep. And it's a peace. It's, it's good. It's great. It's perfect. It's hunky-dory. It's great. That's where David's at because of where he's put his heart and trust in, knowing that only the Lord can, can quiet his contented heart and is confident in the fact that those who are trying to take his kingdom away from him will meet their end. Because only the Lord, his covenant-keeping God, the God who's made a covenant with him, and this was God's covenant with David, you will never not have someone on your throne. Absalom's trying to take it. Shimei's trying Everybody's trying to take it. People are even telling you, I'm trying to take it. And yet, remember my promise. I promise you, King David, that you will always have someone on your throne, that there will always be someone on the throne of David reigning in Jerusalem. That's the promise that you need to remember, David, because that's the, safe, the, the ark of safety that you're going to dwell in. You're dwelling in the fact that when I said I promise you, to do, promise you something, I will keep it, and I showed it to you. How did God show it? He showed it when he sent the son of David in Jerusalem thousands of years ago to die and to re- live and to reign so that you who have died with Christ live with Christ and, re- and live with him for all eternity. He doesn't save you once, but he keeps you saved. And he honors that promise. He proves it to you at the cross. 
He proves it to you at the fact that not only does he just say, you know, you'll have someone, someone on your throne. He doesn't just say you'll have protection. He proves that. From the, ultimate, from the ultimate turmoil, from the ultimate wrath that is facing you as sinners is the very wrath of God. And if you come to Jesus Christ by faith, he will save you. He'll save you from that, and that in Christ then is your ark of safety because he bore that wrath. He bore it upon himself so that you and I can stand before God not as guilty sinners but as sinners saved by God's grace and mercy. But there's one thing that we need to remember here, too, is that when you have a contented heart that comes from that confident joy in the Lord, it means dealing with slander by taking it ultimately to the Lord. First and foremost, taking it with him. The urge, again, is to take it to other people. Don't do that. Take it to him. Because he's the only one that can hear you and, and you can be, expect an answer. When you're dealing with revenge, don't deal with it impulsively. Don't just try to fix it soon and immediately and therefore alienate people and hurt others. Take it to him, pray, and consider how best it would be according to the Christian character and the Christian profession that you make, how best it would be to approach it. It might mean talking about it. It might mean having an intermediary. It may require not getting a response at all. But that's biblical wisdom. And that's ultimately saying, you know, I'm guilty for my sin. They have to answer to the Lord for it one day. Whatever revenge I want, ultimately he has to settle it. But also dealing with discouragement. It's often discouraging when situations that you want fixed can't be fixed by simply willing it into reality. But sometimes you can't just fix it. And it's having that heart of contentment that says, Lord, I have to leave this with you. Because you fixed everything, and you fixed it finally and perfectly in Jesus. And that's who I have to trust in. With my salvation at that point in my life, but even throughout. And so I give my heart to him. I give my life to him. As the king in glory, the one who sits on David's throne. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you... Our God and our Father, our King, who quiets a discontented heart by giving us a confident joy in you. I pray, O oh God, that you will teach us that even tonight. And I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is, Blessed be the ties that binds. Blessed be the tie that binds, hymn 359. We'll sing verses 1, 2, 4, and 5. Verses 1, 2, 4, and 5 of hymn 359. Stand with me as we sing.